following audio is from St Nick's Durham. As a church, we exist to love God, love people and love Durham. We hope that this sermon will serve you well as a supplement to your regular Bible reading, prayer and participation in your local church. For more information about St Nick's Durham, directions or resources, please visit stnicks.org.uk. to 28. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the bridegroom is with them. Can they? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloth, otherwise the patch pulls away from it. The new from the old, and the worst here is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskin, otherwise the wine will burst the skin and the wine is lost, and so are the skins. But one put new wine into fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the cornfields. As they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing that which is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need of food? He entered the house of God when Abiathar was a high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for humankind and not humankind for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray together. May I speak to the glory of God the Father, in the name of God the Son, and through the power of God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Back in 2004, in its celebration of Black History Month, the New Nation newspaper published the results for its poll for the greatest black icon of all time. The competition was fierce, with Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, and Nelson Mandela all making it into the top 10 of the 100-strong list. There were other names too, perhaps less obvious contenders, such as Oprah Winfrey, who was then the highest earning black woman of all time, and Mary Seacole, the pioneering nurse who earlier that year had been voted the greatest black Briton in a BBC poll. And yet, despite the enormous achievements of each of these women and men, none of them managed to make it to the top spot. 
the winner of the vote for the greatest black icon of all time was Jesus Christ. Are you surprised? Admittedly, to some, the thought of Jesus as a black man is surprising. Not least when considering the depictions of Jesus in Western art and iconography. Indeed, it is those images of a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus, so familiar to us from Renaissance art, which can also be found in churches and chapels across the Northeast, where the image of Jesus revealed in glorious stained glass provides a picture of Christ who looks more like a man from Jesmond than Jerusalem. But as we mark Black History Month in this service, it may well be that you are rightly wondering, well, Aaron, you're a strange choice to preach tonight, given that first, you're not black, and secondly, this is a passage on fasting. And quite frankly, from the look of you, you could do with a bit more fasting to sort out your waistline. And while you may have a point on the second of those, I'd have a different take on the first. I was born and brought up in Birmingham in the 1970s and 80s, when the word black was used as a political term a wider term of identity. To be black was to be non-white. It was to know what it was to be the other, to experience discrimination in the street, in school, in common everyday experience. To be black was to know what it was to identify with those who suffered injustice, humiliation, indignity, and degradation simply due to the color of their skin. To say Jesus is black simply means saying Jesus is on the side of those who suffer. Now, of course, there are those who would say that such talk of what Jesus looks like is irrelevant. It doesn't matter, they would say, whether we see him as black or as white, as long as we see him as Lord. And whilst there may be some truth in those protestations, I think they underestimate the impact and consequences of how we see Jesus both for ourselves and for others. What impact, I wonder, might the image of a black Jesus have made upon those Christian slave traders of London, of Liverpool and Bristol, if they turned up at church on Sunday to see an image above the altar who bore a striking resemblance to the chattel they may have sold the previous day. 
What impact would a black Jesus have had upon the British Empire in all of its colonial glory, where the white missionary brought a white Jesus to black women and men who were led to believe in a Jesus of seemingly white European stock? What difference would it have made to see God in a different way? What difference would it make to see God through new eyes? And it's that question of seeing God through new eyes and what that might mean, which is at the heart of our gospel passage from Mark this evening. In the first of the two exchanges between Jesus and the Pharisees, we read of concerns about the practice of fasting, whilst in the second exchange, we read about concerns about Sabbath observance. And in both instances, it's the practices of Jesus' followers that are challenged. The first challenge is that Jesus' disciples don't fast while others do. The second is that Jesus' disciples are breaking the instruction to keep the Sabbath holy simply by picking heads of grain. And in his response to these challenges, Jesus does not deny either of the ordinances of fasting or observing the Sabbath. His response to the question on fasting acknowledges that there is a time to fast, just as his response on the question of the Sabbath acknowledges its rights, rightful observance. Jesus doesn't dismiss the concerns, but rather suggests that those asking the questions have lost sight of the purpose of the laws. Who it is that those laws point to and have instead focused on the application of the rules. Those asking the questions have become so wedded to traditions, to understandings, even to a culture that mediate their relationship with God, that they have let the rules get in the way of the relationship. The medium has become the message, both to the detriment of the medium and the message. The purpose of the law was to point to a deeper relationship with God, not to replace it. But my friends, I have to admit, I have some sympathy for the Pharisees here. They are following the understandings handed down to them, and their accusations reflect an understanding of the faith as they have received it. And in that sense, how different are they from us? in the church today. And their questions point to both risk and challenge. How are we to avoid the dogmatic certainty demonstrated by the Pharisees that so focuses on rules or tradition that it leaves no room for a living relationship with God or the ongoing revelation 
that comes through his Holy Spirit. I want to suggest tonight that I think there are three things that act as bulwarks against the dead hand of the law and ensure an openness to an ongoing deeper relationship with God. I think that there are three things that are required of us. Humility, courage and trust. It requires humility. The kind of humility that Archbishop Stephen Cottrell spoke of last night in his Borderland lecture to embrace the undefended authenticity of Christ's leadership. To admit whether it be in the institutional racism in our church or in its safeguarding failures that our practices, how we've done things, how we have seen things and the culture that surrounds it all have been inadequate. Whether that be the Pharisees limited in their understanding by clinging onto the rules or the Church of England limited in its practices through cultural operation, deference, superiority even. It takes humility to recognise where we have got it wrong. It requires courage. The kind of courage to be open to a radical reorientation that happens when we follow the gospel. The courage to have our traditions critiqued, to have the paradigms and understandings we have clung to, perhaps even those that have shaped and formed us, to have them challenged by the movement of the Spirit of God. The courage that glimpses the sight of the Spirit on the move and commits to following. Recognising in the words of Steve Bevan that the Church of God doesn't so much have a mission as the mission of God as a church. And finally, it requires trust. The kind of trust that holds to the promises of a God who is not static in character, but who is dynamic. Trust in a God who is on the side of the oppressed, the widow, the orphan, and the alien. The God who tells his people in the words of the prophet Isaiah, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? The God who tells his people not to be afraid, but to trust in him for the journey ahead. It might be a difficult journey, one that requires those with vested interests to lay down power, those who benefit from the status quo to let others have a place, to recognise that when one part of the body hurts, the rest of it cries out in pain. And as we begin that journey, 
God's words through his prophet are heard once more. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. In a moment, in this place, we will celebrate communion, doing so in a time of rules and restriction. We will do so in a COVID-compliant way that recognises that at the heart of those rules is the intent that each of us is kept safe and free from this terrible virus. But the rules do not deny the purpose of what we do when we celebrate communion. In this act, we celebrate the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our celebration of communion together is an act of holy rebellion. Not against rules, but against fear. It's a call to humility in our sin and failures. An encouragement to courage, to believe things that will be different. And a declaration of trust in the promises and purposes of God. Promises demonstrated in bread broken and the divine life outpoured for the whole of humanity. It's an invitation to see the world differently, to reorient our understanding and place God at the centre of it, to declare in the midst of lament, challenge and restriction that there is joy, there is constancy, and there is freedom offered at this table in Jesus Christ who comes to invite each of us into a relationship that goes far beyond the rules and deeper into a life with God. Amen. Thank you for listening to the St Nick's Durham podcast. If you would like to hear more sermons and teaching like this, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about St Nick's, visit our website at stnicks.org.uk.